You're listening to the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hey, this is Ariel Hawani, host of the MMA Hour on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Each week, we interview the biggest names in the world of mixed martial arts and beyond. So tune in live every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern over at MMAfighting.com or download the show afterwards on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you then. Welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Mike Prada. Ben's on vacation, so in his absence, it's time to nerd out. It's time to nerd out over X's and O's, basketball trends, interesting things we're seeing on the court that maybe aren't necessarily team-specific, innovations in the game. This is like kind of the podcast I dreamed of doing. And to help us do that, I've tiled up three people who used to work in the NBA in some capacity, who re- people who actually know their shit instead of me, who kind of fakes it. We've got friend, old friend of the pod, Mo Dockhill, his former video coordinator for the Clippers, Spurs, and the Australian national team. We also had two new guests, Dylan Murphy. He is the editor-in-chief of a site called Basketball Dictionary that kind of explains key terms. He's a former D-League assistant coach in D-League scout. He won a title with the Fort Wayne Mad Ants. He's terrific. He has a great site. He's really interesting and knows the game. And we also had Steve Jones. He's the a former assistant coach with the Brooklyn Nets, a video coordinator with the Memphis Grizzlies. Also, by the way, the son of the former NBC commentator. So that dude knows his stuff as well. And we talk about a lot of different things that we've noticed over the course of the season. We talked about how pick and roll coverage has totally changed even over the last two years. We talk about this new phenomenon with switching. Is this thing here to stay? How do teams attack it? And we also talk about how we as a collective need to better understand how to evaluate players that don't have the ball. If you want to know why a team or a play isn't working, look at how players are cutting or not cutting. We talk a lot about that. We also talk about some specific teams. We talk about why the Celtics have been so much better than expected this year. We dissect Oklahoma City's crunch time issues a little bit. And then we finish off by kind of talking about some big questions. What is the next big innovation we see in the game of basketball? You know, and most importantly, if you want to be able to watch film like an expert like these folks, what's some things that you can learn how to do to start to kind of at least get to closer to their level? So it's a really enlightening conversation. If you're interested in how the game actually works, you're going to love this. This is a Limited Upside podcast. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. You can find us on Apple Podcasts at Limited Upside. Leave us a nice review or leave us a not as nice review if it's constructed. We want to hear the feedback either way. We love the five stars, obviously. We also love to hear what you like and maybe don't like about the show and ways we can make it better. We also take in your questions. We asked a couple on the show. This time from regular listeners, you can tweet at us at limited underscore upside. You can also find us anywhere you get your podcasts and on SBNation.com. But without further ado, it's time to get geeky about basketball. This and this edition of the Limited Upside Podcast. Welcome back, Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Mike Prada. Ben's away, and so without him, and this is very sad that he's away, but without him, I decided it might be time to call in some people that are way smarter than us <laughs> about how to cover basketball. So I've got three folks who have worked in the NBA in the past, three people who have done a lot of film work, a lot of coach work, kind of can read the game in a totally different way than me or anyone else. And we want to kind of talk about some X's and O's trends we've noticed over the first month of the season. So let me introduce the panel. We've got uh, previous guest Mo Dockiel worked for the Clippers and the Spurs uh, as a video coordinator and also the Australian national team. Mo, how are you? I'm good, Mike. I'm always happy to be here. And we got two new guests on the way. One, you've probably heard if you listen to Nate Duncan's podcast, but former SB Nation contributor, but also much more well-known for uh, – being an assistant coach for the Fort Wayne Mad Ants, winning a D-League championship, D-League scout, and now runs a website that I use to basically cheat and pretend like I know what I'm talking about called Basketball Dictionary. Dylan Murphy, what's going on? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. And last but certainly not least, uh, he worked for the Brooklyn Nets as an assistant coach, video coordinator with the Grizzlies, uh, 
winless summer league record, which we were just making fun of him before the show. And also, uh, you might recognize the name because he's the son of the legendary broadcaster, Steve Jones. Steve Jones, how are you? I'm doing good. Appreciate you guys having me. So I asked each of you guys before we started this whole thing uh, to bring to kind of send over like what's an interesting sort of league-wide X's and O's type trend that you've noticed this year in particular, but also sort of as a rising tide. And what do you think is behind it? And what teams are sort of most interest, like kind of most interesting case studies? Dylan, I really like, I want to start with what you sent over, which was you were talking about how you feel like pick and roll coverage has totally changed over the last even two years. Uh, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, you know, sort of dating back, I'd say maybe five, six years um, with like, the shot distribution changing in the NBA. You see a lot of teams obviously going to the rim and focusing on three pointers, getting to the line and avoiding mid range shots. So uh, defensively teams were really dropping deep back and pick and roll with their bigs uh, and sort of how Roy Hibbert used to do for the Pacers and just protect the rim, let a guy come off a ball screen and dribble into an 18 footer. And if you can get a contest or a rear view pursuit from the guard fighting over top, great. If not, well, we're still still forcing the you know the least economical shot on the floor, um, and you've seen teams now sort of respond by uh, a lot of guards. They're able to now hit pull up threes. They're not just dribbling into 18, 17, 15 feet right there. You know, mm-hmm. Damian Lillard, Steph Curry, those guys. They're pulling up at three, and now they're getting wide open, uncontested threes off pick and roll. So now you see sort of this yin and yang where okay, well now we're gonna say oh you're gonna take mid range shots. Well the reaction to that is the bigs now are coming up way more aggressively to greet ball handlers right at the three-point line. And so, you know, in terms of a team doing that, I, you know, I would say it's more really a reaction to who you're playing. It's really personnel dependent. And, you know, against the Kyle Lowry's of the leagues, the Steph Curry's, you see teams being way more aggressive and, and greeting the ball right at the level of the screen. I remember, you know, a few years ago, dropping back was all the rage. It was like, Let's play conservatively, like you said. Let's yield the shot. I think you're right that the ability for these players now to just pull up for three uh, has really changed the calculus. I think the other thing, too, is that there's just now that little pocket that you would have surrendered, um, there's just more space to for these guards to drive. And it's interesting to me to see. So, I mean, are there teams that out there that you've noted, you guys have noticed that are kind of. Let more aggressive than they used to be. Like there are always these this Thibodeauian style drop back sort of thing. But you know, even some of those teams are now bringing their bigs a lot higher on the floor. Well, I mean, it's just kind of like Milwaukee Bucks with you know when they had Giannis and Jason Kidd, and they had that ultra aggressive trapping style defense last year. You know, and I think that's you know really aggressive trapping. As soon as somebody come off the pick and roll, you know they're they're blitzing it and they're and they're trying to to force it into a tough pass. Uh, you were complaining last night, Prado, while watching the Wizards Bucks games. I saw a tweet <laughs> where you're like, thing we do. With the lo- <laughs> right. But can we stop with the looping pass? And that's the pass they want, right? There was a right. great article by Kevin Arnovitz where, he, you know, Jason Kidd said, we want them to throw balls and not fastballs. So, you know, fastballs, precision, it's, you know, if they get that pass out as a double team, then there's, you know, four on three at that point. But if they can throw a looping pass, then they're just going to count on their length and things like that. So, you know, that's one team that just comes off top of my head that's just ultra-aggressive. And then I remember when I was with the Clippers, when we had Bledsoe coming off the bench, we were super aggressive with that dude. You know, he, he changed the course of many games for us just with his aggressiveness defensively and pick and rolls. And Blake would pick up on it, and we would just use our athleticism, and, and that would get us into turnovers and transition and get us running. Well, it's interesting you bring up the Clippers because they had this sort of existential crisis while you were there and also afterwards where it's they play this very aggressive style, but then they started to get beat with kind of ball rotations and slips. And so then they, the question was, can they drop DeAndre Jordan back now and then dial it back up? Uh, but honestly, like there is a middle ground here that I think a lot of teams have found. What I've noticed is that there aren't like a – there are some teams like the Bucks, but there are just a lot more teams where it's like, yeah, let's creep the big up like a little bit further, right? No, I would say definitely that's the case. Um, you know, fives are being way more aggressive, venturing out high. And I think the idea, it's sort of the Bucks idea, maybe not to that extreme, but the idea being, well, if you greet the ball handler right at the point of the screen, even if you're, you know, 
level with him. You're not, you know, hard showing and coming out perpendicular to him. Um, the idea being, well, he's going to have to make a decision, and the decision likely is you're going to have to throw like a quick pocket pass to the roller or that looping high pass to, you know, the opposite wing or opposite corner. And, you know, teams with Link can either steal that or just recover back in time. And, you know, the, 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 I think the idea really is like, like you were saying before, is when you drop back too deep, you know, ball handlers now are too skilled, too fast, too athletic. You give them all that time and space to build steam and make decisions. You're just going to get beat every time. So, you know, you're just trying to counter that by, you know, sort of changing the decision maker and making the decision maker maybe a, you know, a roller catching the ball at the free throw line or right above and having to now take a couple dribbles or, or make a decision that way. I think this relates to to the other sort of side of this. And uh, Steve, I'm curious what you think of this. The We see now, of course, much more switching on the pick and roll, much more switching off ball. That seems like a very logical sort of progression when you're talking about now you can't surrender that pull-up shot like one way to do that and if you're playing more like-sized people is to just switch i'm curious to see if you've noticed like one of at what point at some point we're going to have the backlash of the backlash and teams are going to learn how to exploit that better i'm not sure i've seen a good strategy for like how to attack like like-minded switches have you seen anything like that because that that to me is sort of the logical next step is if you can't drop back and surrender a long three to the Steph Curry's and the Kyrie Irving's of the world, then you could just switch those. But I'm not sure I've seen a great counter to that yet. And maybe I'm missing something. A counter to a team switching? Yeah. Like what's that? So, so if you think about this, the drop strategy got foiled because like, like Dylan was mm-hmm. saying, you have these three point shooters out that you can just take off the dribble threes. And the other element of it too, is now you have like shooting four. So you can't necessarily ice as easily on the side where you kind of drop your big, you can just pop to open three space. So you're seeing now more switching in the pick and roll. Is there, have you noticed any evidence of like the offense not countering to that? Well, the idea behind the switch is really just kind of bog them down. Take right. away any sort of rotation. We're going to keep you in front. We're going to try and contest. Now, the issue is some teams are switching, but they're not able to contain the penetration, right? I think Cleveland early in the season, they were doing a lot of switching, but they were still getting beat. You know, it, it's one of those situations where teams are, are generating mismatches or able to get penetration. Like a team like Houston, for example, they're spacing. You don't want to switch even a four on Harden if you can help it, right? mainly because he's going to find a driving lane. Now you got to overhelp, rotate. The issue with the switching is teams are finding ways to put those fours, those fives who switch into different situations to where maybe they're helping in a position they were not used to. And so now all of a sudden, while you may not get the initial drive, you find someone who gets a driving lane, a big overhelps, you got an open shot, kind of mess it up that way. But one team that I'd like to point out, since we're talking about it, is Boston. Mm. Because the big difference they have this year is the versatility defensively. You know, people forget last year they had five or six bigs, like true bigs they were trying to fit in, and they had smaller guards, right? They had IT, they had Bradley, they had all those bigs. This year they have a bunch of versatility as far as having just length and athleticism. So now all of a sudden they could switch. Horford can late switch. They can do all sorts of things, which is helping them really create that havoc defensively. Like switching is still relatively new thing. I mean, when I was with the Spurs, and this was several years ago, we never wanted to switch because we had Tim, right? And like, you, you, we didn't want Tim on a guard. And we had situations where this was when Mello was in Denver, and, and him and Chauncey Billis would run a 1-3 pick and roll, and the last thing we wanted was to switch and have Tony Parker on on Mello. Like, for, for switching is kind of become a thing over the past few years and I think that that that's become more accepted as long as we have guys that, that can handle and contain like Steve was saying. And I think that's just kind of an interesting way the game has sort of evolved as well is that the switching on on anything, pick and rolls or pin downs or whatever, has become more like almost a first go to now instead of what it what it used to be, which was like at least when I was around, I remember it being like, "This is if we absolutely have to, we'll switch, but we really don't want to do this. So, I mean, that, that's kind of just an interesting side of how the game's gone. Oh, I had a quick point. Just because bringing up and just what you said, Mo, made me think of it. You see more teams are having point guards set pick and roll now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
mainly to try and counter that, trying to put the defense position where you don't want to switch your point guard onto, you know, a LeBron or a Harden or a wing like that. So they're making you put a show, a little indecision, get downhill, create some room that way. So that's probably one of the biggest things I'd say, maybe a counter that you see teams are doing, trying to put, uh, manipulate the pick and roll. I mean, look at Miami. They have Dragic set for James Johnson all the time because they don't want to have people switching. So that's just one of the things I point out there. I was just going to ask you guys, I mean, in my experience, you know, we... In the D-League, obviously, it's you're smaller, so you're really able to switch one through four more easily. But, you know, did you guys ever practice guarding wrong positions? You know, having one practice, one's practicing guarding the post or four is practicing guarding the perimeter? Because, you know, I see a lot of teams now, like you guys said, the, the default is just to switch automatically because it's easier and requires less effort. But how many teams actually have their players practicing how to guard when you're in a mismatch situation. You know, it's sort of just a given, hey, keep them in front, but it's such an elementary part of defense now that you would think that, you know, for all the the training you do as a team and guarding pick and roll, you know, how much is really how much was really devoted to, you know, these mismatch situations. When I was around, I don't we did it but like very little. And like also, you know, as the NBA season goes on, there's less and less practice and practices, right. you know, turn into walkthroughs and things like that. Like you just, cause then, it, then it's about rest and things like that. Like that might be something I remember us doing it in San Antonio, but it was not a lot. And I think it was very early in the season and not something we continued with down the stretch. I don't remember doing it at all with the Clippers. You know, I'm just curious oh, if teams like in, in training camp would ever do that, you know, but Steve, what was your experience? Oh, I was going to say, I've seen mainly you kind of get that in if, with teams who switch late clock because that's when the switching started. Low shot clock, we're just going right. to switch, keep in front. So you kind of get it in in that segment, but it's hard to kind of focus in on, hey, we're just going to switch because then you're ignoring the rest of your defensive principles. So I think it's something you can kind of fit in and mix in, but I don't know if teams are really just focusing on just switching because then you're really not getting the whole truth of going through other teams' plays or sets because you're just switching and then it blows up. You know what I mean? Well, I also, it's also interesting to me that the point, Steve, you were making about how we focus so much on like the two players who switch like a screen versus the guy on the ball. But once you switch, you're also putting the weak side help defender is now not as long or is able to cover as much ground as before. And uh, you see some teams start to exploit that. So you almost have to reteach your entire team like how to play every single spot uh, in a defensive structure, like, and that's obviously takes a lot of time and is really hard. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, if the switching, like, if teams are really, you know, Mike D'Antoni has said the other day that, you know, he thinks in five years it, everyone's just going to be switching everything one through five or something to that effect. I can't remember the exact, but, you know, I'm curious if we'll get to a point where now teams are practicing these mismatches and we're, they're teaching their defenses how to guard this way as opposed to, you know, like Stephen Mo said, I mean, in my experience, it was you teach pick and roll, you teach your ISO defense, you teach all that stuff and the shell drill. And and then you also say, hey, OK, we're all, maybe in a timeout and say, OK, we're going to start switching this. And it's just sort of, OK, now we're switching, but you don't practice it because it's, you know, it doesn't. The idea is, again, like Steve said, it doesn't require the rotations, it, you know, bogs down the offense. You just keep in front. So, uh, you know, I'm curious if that's going to develop that way. Well, if you're the coach. What would you do? What, what would you guys do if that was because that's a really reasonable concern? Like, what, how much time would you devote to it? Like, who would you ask to be switching onto what, practicing what types of switches? Uh, how much would you try to involve all five players as opposed to just the two that are doing the switch at once? Like, how would you, how would you drill that? Well, in, in San Antonio and, and Dylan, we actually did part of our shell defense was practicing switching. And just just real quick, the by the way, sorry, because uh, shell defense, can you just like a really brief explanation of what that is? Because I know what that is, but I don't know if all listeners do. No problem. And I'm hoping Dylan has it in the basketball dictionary or <laughs> it will be up soon on the basketball dictionary, Dylan. But uh, <laughs> it's getting there. Shell de- <laughs> <laughs> but it's basically just kind of running through your defensive principles and you're not going full speed, at least in my experiences with it. And you're just walking through the rotations and as the ball's getting swung around the the defense is shifting so you're kind of walking through rotations and and what you're what you want to do and that's kind of where coaches kind of explain it. and then you could ramp it up and and go faster and faster and start having guys you know if you want somebody to drop down when the ball goes there you 
you practice that. And it's kind of like, it's almost like doing a five on O offense where you just run through your plays. You're running through your defensive rotations that way. In San Antonio, we, part of our shell defense was switching because, you know, our point was that the defenders actually have to make contact before they switch, you know, so that they got to touch each other before they switch so that there was kind of helps eliminate slips to a degree. Um, Cause you can't switch. If your guy slips, you got to go with him. So that was something as a coach, I actually liked Dylan's idea of let's practice, you know, bigs guarding guards and, and, you know, guards working on, on defense in the post and, and things like that and, and drilling that. But it's not something I would do all season. I think that's stuff I would drill early in the in the year, um, training camp and, and early on. But as the season goes on, you want to rest legs. So I really kind of would steal Dylan's idea and, and, and drill those and, and just really pound in uh, shell defense all my principles. Yeah, that's exactly how I would do it too. You you, you can't you know the same even in the D League we only played fifty games, but it was the same thing. I mean we would have three four games in a week too. So um, you know you really you know like you guys have said, there's just there's no practice time. It's all walk through, and, and we did the same thing. It was you know and shoot around. We're going through shell and through you know whatever pick our pick and roll coverages were for that night or whatever our preferred matchups were, and you know we'd walk through it, but nothing at, at any sort of speed. But you know in training camp we did you know, like three on three pick and roll coverage or whatever it was, but we never did any switching stuff. So I want to circle back to the Celtics because that was a team I expected you guys to talk a lot about with, with this switching um, to what Steve was saying. So one of the things that's interesting about the new makeup of the Celtics is that they actually are like size this year, as opposed to last year where they were small on the wing and they had traditional big bigs and whatever. Steve, how would you attack if a team has four players that, can guard the ball, but also grab a defensive rebound and also help. And is and they can have as many as that with Tatum and Brown and Morris and Horford and even Kyrie, who's giving more effort. How would you attack? And, and this, of course, also applies to the Warriors. Like, how would you attack a team like that, knowing that they can just sort of trade off and bog your offense down? Like, what sorts of strategies would you use to try to penetrate that Boston defense, which is right now the best in the league by a pretty fair margin, I believe? Well, generally, you got to attack them. You got to move the ball. You got to try and make quick decisions offensively. The worst thing teams can do is hold the ball against that defense. Uh, you know, I, I believe when they played Brooklyn, Brooklyn had some success because they have that pace. They kept moving it. They didn't have anything. They swung it. They kept attacking. So you got to have multiple attacks to try and loosen them up. The worst thing you can do, I think Dallas did it last night, but Harrison Barnes held it and held it and held it. So now you got Horford staring at you with long arms out. You got a guy guarding you. You got the help locked in. If you can move their defense around, you can kind of get some attacks and keep moving it. That's the biggest thing. And hopefully you do some good things in transition. The worst thing you can do is hold it, try and attack a mismatch. Then you dribble in the help or they, they get a lot of deflections, a lot of hands on balls because of that length. Now you got a contested shot. Makes it pretty tough. And that's by design. You know, that's why they have all those like-minded. Even Horford will do a late switch. So it's really just keeping them moving, keeping them off guard and trying to make some quick decisions in the half court with good tempo. I love this topic of kind of moving the ball because this is such a huge coaching emphasis and moving players. And yet it's still, there's so many examples. I mean, we, we got a question about the Thunder, and this, this is what I think happens to the Thunder. And I'm not asking specifically about the Thunder here, but you have so much of every coach wants players to move and for the ball to move. Uh, but it's hard. It's exhausting to always do that. Like it's, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of sort of instinct too because you can't really think about it. Like, how do you drill flow? Is like sort. Of, it's a really big question that I wonder about all the time. It's like, how do you get Harrison Barnes to not sit there and think too much and kind of hold the ball? You know, what what do you what do you have to show him to kind of get him out of that and. Especially against a team like the Celtics or the Warriors, where like your first, the first time you try to do something, like it's not going to necessarily work. You have to kind of pinch away. Like, how do you guys drill that? I think if we figure that out, we'd be coaching. Uh, <laughs> it's a hard. It's a hard. Yeah. <laughs> that's a million dollar question for every coach. I think um, some coaches have a better handle on it than others, and some players have a, a more of a desire than others to to do that. I think it's it's not easy. There's not one drill. It's, it's constant ball movement. It's something you preach and it's not, it's, it's not one film session. It's not one. It's just, it's your principles that you constantly have to keep preaching and, and 
and keep pushing for it. And, you know, either the player is going to figure it out and he's going to kind of assimilate or he's not, and you got to move him. And obviously that sounds really simplistic and easy and it's not, but that's kind of the thing. Like if you preach ball movement, but have a guy like Harrison Barnes, who when the ball goes to him, he's a ball stopper. I mean, you're screwed. Like that's, you know, he's going to kill every play. Like when I coached junior college basketball, we had a guy, we just called him the Terminator. As soon as the ball (laughs) hit his hands, he terminated every play. That was it. It was done. And, you know, so I think it's, I don't know if it's one thing you can do. It's, It's constant drilling. It's constant, you know, film sessions, constantly preaching it, constantly pushing it and praising them when they do it right. And, and, and letting them know when they do it wrong. And then I think the other thing too, in terms of just flow, I think you got to play more, just and, and maybe scrimmage a little more in practice that allows an up and down flow. In my time, we did a lot of stuff that was always half court and it was, you know, the, the league wasn't running as fast as it is now. Um, but the, the the flow of it is something that you got to get these guys' bodies conditioned to it, you know, because everybody says they want to run, but nobody really understands the commitment of having to run back and forth and how much more they're running versus a regular half-court offense game. I think also as a coach, you have to sort of, you know, like everything most of it is totally spot on. It's, it's, it's more mentality than a specific drill. And I think just to add on a little thing to that is you have to be careful to – constantly putting your money uh, your money where your mouth is in terms of like in a game situation where maybe some guy's feeling it that you're not just drawing up a play for him to iso all the time constantly or you're not getting bogged down in that and getting caught up in it yourself as a coach because it's easy when you see a guy you know really scoring the ball you know logically you want to give him the ball again right he's he's feeling it but there's that there's that careful balance of you don't want to be ride that train too long to the detriment of your team in the long term. It's sort of the idea where uh, Stan Van Gunny talked about two for one a while ago about how like, yeah, mathematically it makes sense. But like, if you're just encouraging your guys to take bad shots at the end of quarters, then what effect does that have on your team in the long run? So it's like, you just have to be careful that, you know, you're not, you're not getting caught up in the moment as a coach. And, And it can be tough when, you know, your goal is to win the game in front of you, but you also have to keep that sort of a long-term mentality to it. Do you think that's what's wrong with Oklahoma City in crunch time right now? Or do you think it's something else? Because that's a very popular topic right now. And I'm curious to hear the coach's perspective on this. When I think about the Thunder, it's it's learning. them. They're still learning. You know, they're in the learning phase of how do we finish this thing off? They're not necessarily using each other to their strength to their advantage, if that makes sense. So you'll see them early in the game, Russell and Mello will be in a pick and roll, or they'll have Mello and George in a pick and roll or have George come off screens, which is great. But late in the game, they don't know exactly which one to go to, right? Mm-hmm. And they're not exactly used to using each other or having other options to use. So I think, you know, early in the game last night, if I remember correctly, I might not, but they had switches for Mello, got him in the post. Late, they didn't go back to him in the post. They just kind of you know, use them as spacers and use Adams and pick and roll because you have to use Adams somehow. Right. So it's just kind of being able to to learn, okay, are we going to post up Paul George? We're going to post up Melo. We're going to let Russell come off pick and roll. Are we going to put them all together? And, you know, the best teams know what their bread and butter is late. You know, even if it's Golden State, dumping it in the post and cutting off of it. If it's LeBron having someone set a pick and roll so that the defense freaks out and he gets an advantage. Those kind of things are what the best teams know. And Oklahoma City right now is in a position where they're doing well. They just haven't learned how to finish it off. And, you know, normal teams get that kind of benefit of the doubt, but they have those three stars. So it's a huge problem. They'll figure it out. I find that when they get a chance to, like, draw something up, like, it actually works quite well. It's when they can't like call a timeout and say, okay, remind Mello that you need to be here or remind George that you're coming here. Like basically they can't draw it up on the clipboard. It doesn't come instinctually. At least that's how I view it. I don't know if, if either you, Dylan, or Mo agrees if there's something else going on. I think it just comes down to a pecking order. You know, sort of what Steve was saying that like they just, they've all been the guy at the end of the game. And so it's like, I feel like the opposite effect occurs where it's like because they have other players, they don't feel like they need to be the guy. So maybe they're not as, you know, as take charge in their mentality towards the end. But again, I mean, you know, Miami had the same problem, right? They were nine and nine when LeBron and Wade first came together and they couldn't really figure it out, you know, what sort of what order 
everything was supposed to go in and who was supposed to fit where. And it, it just, I mean, it takes time and training camp is, you know, shorter and shorter every year. And, you know, guys are resting and it, I think it's just, you know, it's just going to be a timing thing. And I'm, I'm, you know, I think the bigger issue that, or not, sorry, the bigger positive here is that they're building these huge leads in games. You know, I mean, they're clearly showing that they can be better. So it's just ironing out, you know, this kink of like having the mentality to finish out games properly. They had 20 point leads in their last two games, right? I believe so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, they're, they're, I was watching that Spurs game and it was like, I mean, they were, it was, wasn't even close. I mean, it was just a domination. It's like when you play pickup at the park and it's like adults against kids. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, everything just turned on a dime. Yeah, I think. You're right in the sense of it's uh, Dylan's correct, and like it's a pecking order. Dylan and Steve, you know, kind of figuring out the pecking order, and that's such a key point, Dylan. Of like, they're building these big leads now; they just got to figure out how to hold it and who to go to in crunch time. And Mike, like you're right, like when they draw up a play with those three guys, like they draw up some pretty good stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it gets it results into an open look whether it goes in or not. When they're in the flow and when they're they're going up and down and not you know and and it's just kind of action or whatever. The one thing I don't see is just not a lot of player movement when all three guys are on the floor. Yep. And part of me thinks they're like afraid to cut. Like there was, I almost tweeted out a picture you know from the game last night where Russ is coming off of a pick and roll and George is almost at half court, and it allowed Tony Allen to kind of really cheat in and be in, like, a good help position and deter, you know, Westbrook's uh, drive. And I was just sitting there just going, like, God, if, if George just cuts right down that lane, yep, like, either it opens it up for Westbrook or he's open. And it's just, like, and, and it's just player movement. And same thing when Melo gets it in the post. And, I think, you know, it's so stagnant when he gets it in the post that they're just kind of sitting around and watching. And I'm, once it goes in the post, these guys got to move around or, or, or set a screen off ball and make something happen. But they are just so stagnant. And I think that's kind of where they, they sort of get bogged down with these guys where it's kind of the my turn, your turn, his turn kind right. of attitude. And, it's, and, and they just kind of stop. And it's like, no, just keep running and keep moving. And I think if they get more movement, player movement, not necessarily even ball movement, but just more player movement than cutting, I think you'll see a lot more, but it's a hard adjustment for these three guys who are used to having the ball in their hands all the time right? to have to make these cuts and no one to cut. Absolutely. So I think that's, that's what they need to learn. Yeah, there was a play uh, in the fourth quarter that I remember they ran a really nice pick and roll early in the quarter, and uh, you know the, the weak side defender sunk in off Mello in the corner, and Russ, he was wide open, and Russ threw him this pass that was just like way off target. He had to like reach really far to get, and it just totally screwed up his shooting motion. And it's like that type of that that makes a huge difference. And that's where the unfamiliarity comes in. And this speaks to the pet issue I wanted to talk about and get again the opinion of people who are way smarter than me on this. I feel like we do not we the public, not necessarily we the the NBA teams or we you know the people who know to watch this. I don't think that we the public really understand how to evaluate a player when he doesn't have the ball and how to evaluate, like, how do we know what a good spot-up player is or a player, you know, that you had a great term. There's a great term for this that, again, I stole from Dylan's website, um, the shake, which is basically refers to, like, what a third player is doing on a pick-and-roll to give a passing lane and just, like, kind of how that, like, kind of scripted cut and what that does. I just feel like the only way that we, the public, really understand, like, thinks about whether a player is a good like spot up player or whether this player would fit in well around the stars is like, oh, does he shoot forty percent from three point range? Boom. If he does then he's good. If he doesn't he's not. It's so much more complicated than that, I think. And I'm curious if if you guys agree with me that this is like something that we don't do a really good job of as a uh, analyst to really understand like what happens away from the ball or away from the play like makes such a huge difference in what actually how the play is executed. I mean, I'll, I'll just you- say on that, like, there's, I think they're, like, really understanding how spacing is supposed to work in terms of when you're in the corner, are you in the deep corner, or are you lifted six feet off the baseline, so, so you're not totally spaced? Yeah. Are you, What are those you know, terms are mean, you, just for the layperson? I'm really curious, because this, so like, this is really interesting. Like, there is, there is a difference between just standing in the corner and, like, where you stand in the corner and the wing is super important. 
Right. So if you're if you're guarding a guy in the corner, the the closer he is to the baseline, the further back it pulls you towards the baseline. So if he starts creeping up towards the ball, then you get to creep up towards the ball, which means that you're in an earlier help position on penetration or pick and roll or whatever your your assignment is on that play. And and so, you know, usually you want to be in as an offensive player deep in the corner as possible so you're as out of sight as possible and you're drawing your defender back. Now, obviously you can't be against the baseline cause then you're behind the backboard, but you know, you kind of want to, uh, you know, play that as much as you can. And then, you know, moving away from the ball. One of the things we always used to work on going back to sort of, sort of our ball moving conversation was relocating on drives. So like there's a common thing like baseline drive, baseline drift. So when a guy drives and he gets near the baseline, you need to get to that corner all the way. So when the you see like corner, the saying. opposite corner, yeah. correct. So like Manu Ginobili was great at that little one-handed pass down the baseline, right? So you can get there. But if you're not all the way in the deep corner, that pass isn't there. And so then that three-point shot never arrives. So it's little things like that, being able to, to move and put yourself in passing lanes so ball handlers can find you. And guess who gets the turnover if you're not there? Right. It's not you. It's right. the guy who has the ball. So, um, can you I, I, can you guys like talk me through talk the listeners through this uh, shake concept, which I think is really interesting. It's basically the idea is that when when the third defender is like kind of sinking in, you need to actually move to create a passing lane. Like Mo, how did you guys drill that? I mean, quite frankly, it was literally just you come off the pick and roll, and the guy who's in the deep corner is gonna pull up as he sees the defender going. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's it's really just a, a very simple thing, but it's such an easy, like it's it's such a key movement that really opens things up for teams in the pick and roll. That really takes advantages, takes advantage of guys that are coming in to help. Like that's the key. Like when we're watching film, we're looking to see what how these teams rotate defensively, and all of these cuts, the shake, or or even if it's one you could backdoor or whatnot. These are all meant to take advantage of this team's particular rotation. So, you know, if this team helps off the strong corner on drives, you know, you know you can kick it out there and just different movements and things like that. So drilling it would just be quite easily just constantly just doing it over and over again until it's just a, a reflex for the for the guy that's in the corner that's always going to be coming up and, and shaking and getting ready to shoot on that. You know, it's, it's getting in the position, getting your – your hands ready and your feet ready and, and, and your balance right so that when the pass does come, you can make the defense pay for it. Steve, who do you think is really good at this? Like players as and teams. As... The idea of like these little movements off the ball that you're not going to get a stat for it unless you score. Uh, but they basically, it takes their pick and roll game to another level where other teams like this isn't quite as emphasized. This idea of these these random cuts that open things up. Like who would... Are there certain players that your teams that you notice that are really good at this? Uh, and like, you know, I'm just curious to in your experience. Well, off the top of my head, Kyle Korver, yeah, probably one of the best that's ever done it, just because of the different ways he can he can hurt you. Obviously, uh, you know, catching and shooting, but in the pick and roll, being able to set a weak side flare or to relocate. You know, if, if you look in, if he's in the corner and you sink in, he rises up. Or, you know, he comes off a flare, someone sets. The different things that he can do in those little ways are huge. Uh, I think it's just it's interesting these days because more people are using driving lanes. And the interesting thing is, it may be going off the topic, but no, you, see more non, <laughs> see, you see more non-shooters cutting yeah. to the basket. So the first team I can think of off the top of my head is Miami, where yep. you've had Wade, you've had Winslow, you've had James Johnson kind of doing these cuts from the corner. You know, as their guys turn their heads because they're not paying attention to them. So those cuts can be valuable. Now it comes to a point these days, though, when to cut, when do you do it? You got to time it up right or else you're taking away the space from your driver. And so it's kind of one of those things that I've kind of noticed that some teams are really good at it. Some some guys are unsure and they cut halfway through and now they're in the mid range instead of getting a layup. So it's just one of those things where you got to have that off ball movement and know when to do it. And that's why these concepts are important. Uh, the pace is important, but the spacing and knowing when to maintain it, when do I cut? And that's why you see more coaches trusting their guys and trying to let them know, hey, you know, if you see it, go ahead. But if we, if you could stay spaced, go ahead and stay spaced. We can get a, a driving lane out of it. 
I, I was going to mention Miami too as a team that I find is really good at just those little movements. Uh, Charlotte is another one that springs to mind. But what I find so interesting about this discussion is like, and this is where coaching really comes into play. Like, a lot of times these this effort is not going to yield anything for you as a player, right? A lot of times it's just a way to get someone else open or whatever. Like maybe it'll help you get a shot, but a lot of times like all you're really doing is just kind of being a diversion for the defense. It's almost like you're scheming a battle plan and like your job is the guy who like runs in front of the line of fire to just distract it. Like you're basically providing cover for someone else. And I feel like I, I, the, psychologically that must be really hard to get people to do where it's like, yeah, you got to work really hard and like you just got to live with the fact that you're not this little thing will help everybody else, but it may not help you. I mean, that I imagine is a really hard message to get through to players who, you know, want shots, want points, want production, want for contracts. I imagine like and I I'm curious if you guys, I mean, have had any experience with this like just getting people to do those sorts of things that are not uh are selfless in a way and I also think like it would be they would feel better about it if we had better ways to measure like who's good at this you know I just think that's like a huge hurdle that a lot of teams have to deal with especially over an 82 game season so instead of screen assists you want like decoy assists I don't know I mean something like (laughs) (laughs) yeah no (laughs) like more recognition even like from just us watching the game or announcers it's like you know instead of talking about the guy who finished like maybe just more recognition for like the cut that led to it I don't know it's just I mean to me like that that's what that just from a layperson, I would feel like that's what would hold people back from doing this all the time is just there's no glory in this there's no hot takes for decoys But you're absolutely right, though, Mike. Like, there are definitely times where this guy made the cut and then it opened it up for this guy, you know, and, and he, that guy gets the point. The point guard got the assist. But the dude who made the cut, he, he gets nothing out of that play. So you're absolutely right about that. Like, there's no question about it. And you're right. We, we have to do a better job of pointing it out of, you know, when they make this cut, even if they don't get the ball, they opened up a lane because the defense had to rotate to that. And, and, and take that away. It opened up the shot for JJ Redick or whoever, Kyle Korb or anybody like that. I think as a coach, one like one of the most important things you do uh, in terms of preparation is choosing what clips to show on film. Because mm-hmm. you could obviously just sit there and watch the entire game and break down everything, but everyone would fall asleep. So really, sort of picking the clips that will have the greatest impact, and I think that's where you can really make a difference with your team to get buy-in where you can highlight a guy and say, instead of saying, Oh, great pass. You, you show a clip of, Oh, Hey, you look at Mo, he made this great cut and it opened up a three point shot. Look at this other clip of him doing it again. And sort of you build, you build equity in your team of doing the unselfish things versus doing the big things. And those are the things that maybe earn a guy extra minutes or extra praise or whatever it is. So then you know, you're building, getting that buy-in that way. And, you know, that was the thing that we always were very careful about is what are we showing on film and what message is this sending to our guys? Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, I just have a few questions I wanted to ask each of y'all. Uh, I know, Mo, you were talking about one trend you've noticed is just guards really snaking over the pick and roll. I saw this awesome play last night, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, where John Wall comes off a screen, he snakes – a marching Gortat screen, he snakes, and so now snaking is basically you cut in front of the defender and kind of hold him on his back, right? That That's basically what that refers to. Yeah. So yeah. he's got Tony Snell on his back, and then as he holds Tony Snell on his back, marching Gortat then rolls and sets another ball screen on John Henson. So he basically sets two screens at once and gets a layup for John Wall. And it was like basically – it's like a double pick and roll that <laughs> he basically like kind of go one by one knocking off the defenders. Like that was fun. But I mean in general, Mo, is this a trend that you've noticed? Uh, what do you think is behind this trend? Why do you think you're noticing more of these guards that are coming trying to cut in front of the defenders and all that? Well, first off, Marcin Gortat's great at that. That play you just described yeah. is something he does all the time for the Wizards. And it really springs guys like Wall open like – he won't even like when he's going to set a pick because he knows the other team's coverage. He knows which guy he actually needs to screen. It may not necessarily be the guy, the 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 defender guarding John Wall, but he knows like he's going to come over the screen and I have to take care. I have to wipe Henson out here, and he does that all the time, and that's great. 
what I've, I just kind of noticed it. Like, you know, last year I kind of noticed it kind of coming on, but this year I feel like I see it five or six times in a game, you know, Reggie Jackson used it a lot. Um, not last night when they were getting stumped by the, the Cavs, mm-hmm. but um, when they beat Minnesota, you know, down the stretches, he would just constantly do it. And I think it's just a great way to encourage the switching of getting a big onto a guard. You know, like, I, I don't think necessarily it's a great matchup of, uh, I wouldn't want Carl Anthony Towns guarding me, but I'm not as good as Reggie Jackson. But like <laughs> making, making those, making those switch. But even then, then you have a guard trying to, you know, hold up Andre Drummond, you know, in the post because of that switch. I think it's a really good action that kind of leads to switches and, and mismatches, which is really what coaches always want is let's just create a mismatch and then get the ball in the right spot. Yeah, no, absolutely. Here's another question I wanted to – maybe I'll send this one over to Steve. We talked about Boston. We talked about Oklahoma City. Let's think of two other teams. Which team do you think so far this season, in your opinion, is most outperforming their talent? In other words, the coaching or whatever they're doing is is particularly good that you've noticed on film? And then which team do you think is maybe underperforming its talent so far uh, most in the league, other than Boston and Oklahoma City, which I think a lot of people would say are the, the, the easy answers? Who else is kind of on that list for you? You took away my answers. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I'll probably off the top of my head, I'd probably say you got to point to Detroit and Indiana Yeah. as far as what expectations were for these teams and not just the fact that they're doing well, they've been able to sustain it to a degree. You know, obviously Indiana's only two games above 500, but, you know, Detroit's finding ways to win games and move the ball and keep scoring, and Indiana's finding a way to kind of blend defense and offense, and I don't think anyone saw it coming. You know, the, the increase in the pace obviously helped those two teams, and uh, they're really doing well as far as that goes. Uh, I guess you could probably say the Knicks, but I won't do that. Um, oh, no. <laughs> There's a crash coming is what you're saying? No. No, 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 not saying that. It's just I got to see a little bit more. They got, yeah, they got, yeah. they got. I need to see a little, a little bit more on the road. You know, it's nice to win some home games, yeah. but let's see how you do on the road. What uh, with Detroit and Indiana? What are they? What's like a little thing you've noticed that like kind of makes a big difference? You think in them outperforming their talent? Like something that a layperson can next time they're watching a Pistons or Pacers game, they should keep an eye on. The biggest difference for me for Detroit is how they use Andre Drummond. So, yeah. you know, you think of him as a pick and roll player and everyone's kind of tried to make him into a post player. And he's, you know, he's not, he's not terrible, but he's not that guy. It's right. just what he is. So this year they've kind of accepted it. So if the action goes wrong and he's down there, he flashes up to the elbow and they hit him and they cut off or he goes to a dribble handoff and they just keep moving as opposed to maybe forcing it in there, forcing a pick and roll. Now they're going to do a lot of pick and roll because late in games, it's pretty much does Reggie Jackson have it that day or does he not have it that day? <laughs> That's going to be their success. I yep. mean, it, it, some, some days it looks great. It gets Minnesota. He was awful. I mean, he's awesome. It gets Indiana. He turned it over three times. In a row. Yeah. <laughs> but I, that'd be the biggest thing there with Indiana. I think it's really just been, obviously you can point to Oladipo, the growth, uh, but Sabonis has been big for them. I think Thaddeus Young has been really good for them. Uh, I think they have just a nice blend of talents who complement each other. And without anyone kind of trying to do too much, you know, because that could be a team that would be in the middle if Oladipo hadn't make it hadn't made some sort of jump. Does that make sense? Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I'm impressed. Just I mean, that's a team. I think it's a really good example of a team that uh, where all five players off the ball are doing stuff to help the guys on the ball for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, here's another question we got. Uh, Dylan, I'll send this one to you from N.O. Carter, who basically um Ask kind of what is your what are some of the set new sets or new alignments that you've seen or new ish alignments that you've seen this year that you kind of enjoy? He mentioned that everybody's kind of a lot of people are running this flexi style high paced offense, but you know what are some other sets um, that you or creative things that you've noticed or that might be uh, your favorites or sort of like ooh I, that's interesting twist on something that we've seen before. I mean, it's something I like, which Golden State has sort of been the pioneer of. Like, you hear them sometimes, we'll talk about pin-ins, which, like, a pin-down is a more common term, which is just, like, a basically a down screen. But a pin-in, the idea being, like, in transition, you'll see them just kind of creep inside the three-point line and just either screen their own guy or screen the closest guy right there mm-hmm. to free, like, a trail three-point shooter. And it's how they get a lot of their open transition threes. 
you just see these little tiny screens or these little drags or just just little contact to throw the defense off when they're sprinting back and moving and in chaos and uh you know you're starting to see more teams steal that idea um and really create more shots in in transition that way you know i mean orlando isn't doing this necessarily the same way but when i watch them it's you know they're the the quad like you look at their three-point shooting and obviously it's up big time but and Aaron Gordon was shooting like 60% for the first 10 games or something. But yeah. um, the quality of their shots are greater because they're playing faster and there's just more unselfishness off the ball and they're just getting much better shots. And so just seeing teams being able to generate the, those sorts of looks early in the clock is definitely that's something I've been picking up on. That's why you play fast, right? It's because the defense isn't set and it's hard to react to those things. They're ran- Mike Fortell used to call them random screens, right? That's sort of what his his old term was. Yeah, no, that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly the idea. Yeah, and that uh, sort of speaks to something I've thought about a lot is like, and we're at one, one question I want to ask all of you, and this is something I've been thinking about, is like kind of what the next big innovation in basketball is. Like what's the next, we, what's the next sort of big thing to mine if we've now figured out that threes are worth more than twos, we figured out spacing, we figured out positionalist stuff, um, and we figured out a lot of that stuff, like sort of what the next big kind of, Maybe it's an innovation on the quarters, an innovation how we think of the game. The thing I keep coming back to, at least personally, is that I almost wonder if the possession as a unit of measurement is like a bad indicator now because the way a team plays off a made shot versus off a missed shot is so different that you're almost playing two different games. And, you know, especially now that you have guys that can grab the rebound and go, I've thought about that one. But that that's more of a like kind of analysis thing. What for each of y'all is sort of, what you like a next possible innovation, you know, that maybe three years from now, imagine us all talking on this podcast again and we're marveling about this. Like, what what do you guys anticipate that might be? I've thought long and hard about this, Mike, <laughs> and, I, I, and I mean it. Like, since we got the questions, I was just kind of like, I really don't know. Hmm. Um, I, I still think, I kind of still think we might see a resurgence in the mid-range shot again, mm-hmm. as teams focus defensively on how we're going to take away threes and how we're going to take away layups and we're going to give up this shot, I think you could see a resurgence of team, of guys working on pump fake from the three-point line, you know, one-two dribble, pull up for the you know 15-footer and things like that. I know there's I know the analytics behind it and stuff like that, but I'd rather have an open 15-footer than a contested three. Um, and that's just me as a coach, and that's the way I've always thought is I just take what the defense gives me. And we kind of saw it with the Spurs and Houston series last year because the Spurs knew these guys weren't pulling up for mid-range jumpers all series. So they just did a great job of closing out on three-point shots and making them try to finish over the top of them at the rim because they knew they never had to worry about you know, hard and pulling up at the elbow. Now they might have to with Chris Paul and you know on on the Rockets, but that was something that they just knew. This is this team's philosophy. They just want threes and layups. If we take those away, they're never going to take these shots. And I think you might start to see a resurgence a little bit in the mid-range game. I could be completely wrong, and I expect to be. But that's, <laughs> that's kind of what I what I what I think. Uh, we might see happen. Interesting. Steve, what's your, do you have a, like kind of something you think is like potential next innovation? It's going to be something that happened before. Okay. I'm going to bet my money on that. All but right. Usually something, something old comes back and then everyone starts to copy it and anything like that. Now yeah. going outside the box, I think someone's going to figure out how to get a three or four guard lineup. I mean like three point guards and make it work. And I'm only saying that because the Blazers starting to play Napier, McCollum, and Lillard together. I saw that. Someone's gonna make that. Someone's gonna make that happen. I don't know who. I don't know how, but I feel like someone's gonna have a three guard lineup that no one could stop. And the the idea behind that working is just that if they all move off each other, they're just so much faster off and on ball than everyone else. That if you're a bigger, even if you're an athletic wing player, you can't necessarily keep up with them if they're just like jitterbugging all over the place. I mean, what, what is the upside of a three guard of a three point guard lineup? You got three playmakers, so you can't hone in on one guy. Mm-hmm. You know, one, multiple guys can do things. If you switch, like you mentioned, they may, you might not have one guy who can guard all of them. So, you know, you get a mismatch somewhere Now you know, not everyone has two or three really, really good perimeter defenders. Right. Right. You can, you can find a way to maybe get a switch and contain, but 
eventually they're going to find some way to get a, an advantage, and I think someone's going to go ahead and do that. That's my uh, magic eight ball that never works. Ryan McDonough was a few years ahead of his time then with uh, the Phoenix Suns guys. Uh, I, I like that one. That that is. I was very intrigued when I saw the Blazers roll that lineup out against. I want to say it was Orlando on Wednesday, or maybe they've done it a couple yeah. times. I was very intrigued. Uh, Dylan, what's uh, something an innovation you potentially see happening? Yeah, I mean, I think what both Steve and Mo said are spot on. It's just the idea that. You know, it's not anything new, but it's just the league becomes very copycat. And then the hardest thing to guard is what you're not used to seeing. Yep. Even if it's less efficient, you know, if you guard, you know, spread pick and rolls 28 out of 30 days, and then you play one team that plays a three two zone, it's like, it just freaks you out a little, you know? And so it, it's, it's hard to deal with. And I think, you know, in terms of a, a change though, I mean, more on the mid range side, I think the post is going to come back in a big way. And I don't think it's necessarily going to be with fives. I mean, it could be, but I think in general, you know, taking advantage of a mismatch now, the primary way a mismatch is taken advantage of is with the guard dribble penetrating against the big. But I think, you know, more and more wings are recognizing that, you know, when they play small ball four and they have to set a ball screen, they get a switch on a guy who's seven inches smaller than them and they can't do anything about it. Right. You know, and so learning how to take advantage of that mismatch in the post not to the point maybe where you're such an efficient scorer but to the point where a defense now has to rotate and adjust and maybe double you know and it's really more about the perception of what you can do versus what you actually can do and i think you know the post mid-range all that is just sort of what's available and next that's being ignored right now i love that statement by the way the perception of what you can do is more important than what you can do i really wish more people who think about the game think of it that way because it's not like everybody, when you're playing the game, you don't know in the moment that Marcus Smart is a 28% three-point shooter. All you know is that that dude continues to shoot and he continues to make himself a threat. You know, I almost think that like what you actually shoot on shots or some of these stats are just sort of almost secondary. Like all, What really matters is like kind of what people think you can do. And I wish more people analyze the game that way. I love that statement. That's just an aside, though. It's like, you know... You gotta fit. If that's why you uh, you always tell players to keep shooting is because you know you have to perceive that they're a threat. Um, but I, I love that statement. I think that's like a really good way to kind of think of your analysis. My thing, by the way, is I think there's going to be a team that comes along that's just like you know what we're just going to really slow this shit down. We're going to never go for offensive rebounds. We're going to play short, late shot clock, and we're just going to make it so that more often than not, it's going to be your set defense versus our, or your set offense or defense versus our set offense or defense. And that's like the big innovation. I mean, we've kind of seen that to some degree, but I think there's going to be a team that just takes it to the extreme at some point where it's like everybody else is playing at 105 possessions and they're at like 90 or 85 or something. Um, last thing uh, from each of y'all, what's one tip – for if someone comes to you and says, I want to be able to notice the things you guys do. I want to be able to watch a game like a coach does. From each of you, what's one thing that you would f- tell them to focus on to kind of get them started? Don't, don't watch the ball. Love it. Watch the, watch the off-ball action. That's the most important thing. That, that's what I look for. The ball is the last thing you need to look for. Dylan? Uh, I would say, I mean, for me, I just pause it constantly. You know, when I watch film, I'm not, I can't pick up everything at full speed at once. It's very hard. You miss things. So, you know, like in Synergy, the video program, which, you know, NBA teams have access to, I just hit the slow-mo button and you can do it on your DVR too. You know, I just watch everything slowly. So then it's easier exactly to pick up on all the off-ball stuff because it can be hard to track everything at once. Steve, what's your tip? Take notes if you can. Ask questions. Ask, ask questions. Try and figure out why did that work. Was that the offense? Was that the defense? Was that a good shot? Was that a bad shot? You know, why is this team winning? You know, if you see a set, why did that play work? Were they trying to do that? Was that a read? The more questions you ask, the more you'll stack on top of it, and the more you'll start to understand trends. And that's the biggest thing I did, at least. So ask questions and, and try and figure some of these things out. Those are all really good pieces of advice. The don't watch the ball thing was someone someone stressed that to me like real way back when, and that's really changed a whole lot. Because at first you don't really know where off the ball to watch, and then you just watch it enough and you figure that out. That's great advice. Uh, thank you guys for this 
X's and O's uh, basketball session. Hopefully, our listeners now have a better sense of what people who are actually you know studying this for teams are looking for. Uh, this was terrific, Steve, Dylan, Mo. Thank you guys so much for indulging in my nerdy uh, fantasies. That sounds really weird. Why did I say it that way? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and tell and by and tell folks where they can find you uh, in case they want to read more of your stuff or listen to you more. Um, Dylan, I know you have basketball dictionary. Uh, anywhere else that they can find you? Uh, that's about that's about it. I'll you know tweet it out as it goes. Uh, whatever I end up writing or podcasting, but yep, basketball dictionary is the main place. And Steve, you can find Steve on Twitter at what Steve Jones twenty. That's right. Yes, that's it. Clips coming up. If I had coffee. <laughs> all righty and mo you have the jumpball.net podcast and you're also on twitter as well uh you'll learn something following these people friends uh you'll learn a lot if you know where to look so thank you guys so much until next time this is the limited upside podcast